Hey guys, it's Annie. For anyone who follows serial spirits, you're probably aware by now that the biggest paranormal event of the year is coming up this weekend. After a two-year hiatus, the Mothman Festival is back for its 20th annual gathering. This weekend, September 17th, 18th, and 19th, the streets of downtown Point Pleasant, West Virginia will be filled with speakers, vendors, and weirdos alike, all gathering to remember one of the most famous cryptids of all time, Mothman. We will be there along with many of our friends from the Unbelievers podcast and folks who have contributed to Serial Spirits over the past four years, and we would love to meet you there. In honor of the Mothman Festival this weekend, we will be playing encore episodes of our own series that we released beginning in 2020 entitled I Am Cold, The Story of Indrid. In this series, Shay and I dove deep into the story behind Mothman, UFO, and extraterrestrial sightings that began in West Virginia and spread across the nation. Research that took us deeper into the worlds of UFOs, government conspiracies, technology, and big business than we could ever have imagined, all culminating with bizarre, paranormal, and synchronous experiences happening in our own lives that we could not and still can't explain. For those of you listening to this series for the first time, we hope you find it thought-provoking and that it inspires you to open your minds to things you never imagined could be possible, but just might be. If you're listening to this again, may you be reminded that the truth is still out there, waiting to be discovered. We have spent hours of our time huddled over computers in dark rooms illuminated only by the glow of those screens. Hands stained with pencil lead, ink, and highlighters. We've looked at maps, reread books, bought new ones, and finally, it was time to put all of this research to use to narrate some of these findings. Things we have kept close to the chest for almost two years. The one person we have entrusted with these things has been our friend and researcher, Chris DeMarais. We have teased this clip you're about to hear a few times, but we had sat down one day in early July to start talking about all of the research we have done, to put together a timeline, and to introduce a man we wanted to talk to for a long time. I don't have my camera on. Oh, shit. Hold on one second. It's not... Uh... All right. Can you hear me now? Here you. I mean, I'm terrible at this, these things. Well, it seems like to me that when these people have these outlandish stories that seem so unreal and untrue, and the government gets involved, these people get discredited so bad. But there's parts of their story that you find out are pretty believable and could be true that they just make them out to look like they're psychotic. Right. I, I think the objective back then was to shame them in public and yeah. force people to think they were just fools and, and, and to make them too embarrassed to continue speaking. That's eventually what happened to Nuremberg. The fact right. that Woody worked for Union Carbide, which is one yeah. of the companies that <laughs> goes back to the heart of everything that we're looking at. Right. Right. And that's in, yeah. 
at its finest if it doesn't mean something. Yeah, I, I, I know. When I saw that, it's in, it's in his daughter's preface to this book that I got. And it says in there, he worked for Union Carbide Metals, and then he, you know, the division, the metal division and all that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, all these companies, it's like a web of, you know, a web of stuff. They're all interconnected somehow. There's periods of technological leap, and then there's periods of corporate wealth. And if you go by what that guy Jim Goodall says, he, he's, you know, he's the same premise that I figured. You know that they, 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 the the government funds these companies and gives them money and money and money. Develop this for us, but we'll use it for twenty five years, and then when we're done, you can patent it and have it. You know, and that's basically what this guy said. But you're still thirty years behind what the government has. They're just way ahead. So all these companies, they got to have a hand in this. You know. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I you kind of got chopped up for. I was gonna say tell tell Annie the story with Jim Goodall so she can hear exactly what he and your okay. feeling how you thought. If, you, if you've got time, if, if so, you think so? This Jim Goodall, what was he in the Air Force? He was in the Air Force. He was a master sergeant. And I said, "Can I ask you another question?" And he's like, "Sure." And I was like, "Hey, uh, what about beings?" I said, "Like aliens, if you want to call them, or you know that." Have you ever heard of any any correlation between EBEs? They call them extra extraterrestrial biological entities. Do you ever do you ever hear of any correlation between EBEs, certain types of craft, and say someone? And this is the way I said it to him. I said, and say somebody like you know Mothman, Men in Black, or Ingrid Cole. And he he it, it was dead silence. I I so I thought that he it was almost like he hung up and I. So I said, hey, Jim, and he's like, yeah. I said, and I repeated it to him. I said, do you think that there's any correlation? I said, have you ever come across that? Has anybody ever said anything to you about, you know, like anything Mothman related, Ingrid Cole, Black Men in Black? And he says to me, uh, aliens. He says, my fourth wife is an alien and I have to go. <laughs> okay. And, and, uh, he didn't say anything to me. And I was like, all right, well, I, I just got the oddest feeling. Like he, the way the way he said it to me. But that's the crazy it. stuff is that of all the things that you said to him, he's yes. talking about 51 and Bob Lazar. Yes, and Joe Snyder and yes. podcast and the search for injured cold my name is annie weibel i'm a paranormal investigator podcaster and social media host and i've dedicated more than a decade of my life to explaining the unexplainable 
What you'll hear in this podcast is one of the most bizarre stories we've encountered yet. One that has changed the way we've looked at everything. And my name is Brendan Shea. For over a decade, I've been exploring the supernatural and the unexplained. This story we are about to tell was one of the first stories so many years ago that led me down this road and furthered my interest into finding some answers, some truth to what we as humans can only begin to comprehend. This podcast helps share some of these stories to all corners of the globe. We leave it up to you whether you believe it or not. Tad Jones, a man who lived just outside of Dunbar, West Virginia, was on his way to work at an appliance store just outside of the capital city of Charleston. As he traveled along the newly constructed Interstate 64, he noticed a congestion up ahead and began to slow down, thinking it was work crews still working on parts of the road. He quickly realized that he was not looking at road crews, but a large round craft. The large sphere was hovering just above the highway between 20 to 60 feet. The object was a dull aluminum color, about 20 feet in diameter, with two large antenna protrusions coming from the top of the craft, and four legs with a propeller attached to the bottom of the sphere. Jones was left shaking. He would later recount to John Keel and Mary Heyer. The encounter for Jones would not end on I-64. After he started to recount his story to local newspapers, he began to receive notes under his door at home. Jones was known as a credible individual. The man did not drink alcohol or participate in recreational drugs. So when he reported that a note had been left under his door, people knew it was for real. The first note read, quote, We know what you have seen, and we know you have talked. You better keep your mouth shut. End quote. For us, this sighting is very intriguing, but also important, because it took place just outside of the Dow Chemical Institute, a company that has appeared frequently in our research. It was a few days after Jones reported the sighting on I-64 that a local UFO enthusiast named Ralph Jarrett reached out to Tad Jones. Jarrett had a strange encounter himself when he began to receive strange phone calls. The phone calls would never have a person on the other end, but instead have strange beeps and tones that seemed almost like a code. Jarrett later recounted to Jones about his sighting and told him that this sighting was located just above a major gas line. After his meeting with Jarrett, Jones again returned home to find a more threatening note under his door. This time the note read, quote, there will not be another warning, end quote. Tad Jones' bizarre encounter did not end here. While driving in the same area where he spotted a craft just a few weeks earlier, he saw a man standing on the side of the road. Being a good person, Jones pulled over and asked if the man needed help. The man only stared at Jones and began to wave. Not knowing what to do, Jones drove away, leaving the man to slowly shrink away in his rearview mirror. The very next day, Jones again would see the same man in the exact same spot. This time he felt an ominous presence as he began to pass by this man. The man was described as wearing a blue coat and a blue hat, 
as if he was in some type of professional uniform. In his hands, he held a box, which seemed to have a large dial on it, with a wire that ran from it to the man's other hand. It was John Keel and Mary Heyer who would later investigate Tad Jones' sighting of this man. As he tended to do, John Keel explored all avenues to debunk the claims. After checking with local work crews, he learned that the man did not belong to any local companies. This man had similar features described by many other witnesses Keel and Heyer had interviewed. He was very tan-skinned, or his face was very flush. Keel investigated the area of the sighting. Upon his arrival, he discovered bare human footprints. And just a few feet away, Keel discovered more tracks. But these were different. They looked like dog tracks from an animal that weighed between 150 to 200 pounds. Also close to these tracks were imprints Keel had seen many times before at other UFO sighting areas. Keel described them as ripple-soled shoes, just like the kind that would be left on the surface of the moon only a few years later. After making casts of these prints, Keel would have them analyzed. The imprints that he thought could be dog-like were not dog tracks at all. No wildlife expert could explain what they were, and no one has ever been able to explain what connection they had to the strange craft or the man in blue seen in this area. That's okay, too. But really, just to get started, um, if you'll kind of introduce yourself, tell everybody if they have no idea who you are, which is probably going to be a rarity for anybody listening to our show. It, um, you know, I was, I, was, I was out of this loop for 10 years. I had four years in Hawaii, and then when I retired, I wrote books. And it wasn't until, I think it was March of 2019, I went to the uh, Big Phoenix Disclosure Con uh, because my He's my little buddy, Michael Schratt, uh, was going to be there. I knew uh, George Knapp and uh, Jeremy Corbell were going to be there as well. So that's why I went. And I said, I, I, everybody was in the conference, and I'm walking, walking around where the vendors are, and there weren't that many people there. And I, I sat down at a booth and talked to a guy named Doc Skinner, and I introduced myself, and his, his eyes got really big. He said, Jim Goodall? I said, that's me. Jim Goodall is a world-renowned author and aviation expert. After beginning his career in the 1960s in the United States Air Force, Jim became enamored with all things tech and aviation. After spending time working in and researching the government's involvement in Area 51, Jim befriended some of the most well-known names in aviation and ufology, including Ben Rich, John Lear, and Bob Lazar. Jim sat with us for an interview detailing his decades of research into our government's aviation technology, recounting some unbelievable stories, and shedding some light on and confirming some of our most startling findings yet. Okay, um, I was born and raised in the Bay Area, in action Silicon Valley, in the Mountain View, Los Altos area. Uh, but I joined the service in 1962. I was a juvenile delinquent. I just had to, uh, I, it was either that or go to jail until I was 18 as a incorrigible youth. Today I'd be called a spirited youth, but back then I was just a juvenile delinquent. I went to the service. I, I, I 
uh, started out as a boom operator in KC-135s, but lost three friends in very, very short order. And when, when you're 17 years old and you lose three friends you've known since kindergarten, it sort of turns you off on the career, the career path you were on. So I uh, opted to stay on the ground. I, re I regret that now, but it's, it is what it is. And I became a communication specialist, and I from uh, from Shepherd Air Force Base in Wichita Falls. I ended up going to Lowry Air Force Base in Denver, uh, where I where I spent what two and a half years. But while I was there, just before I, I was sent off to Alaska, I got a set of orders to go temporary duty to Edwards Air Force Base, and this is this is in February 1964. And when I got there. Um, I was I was assigned to assist in ground-based telemetry for uh, three new airplane projects, you know, Category One testing. One of them was the XB70, the big uh, Delta Wing six-engine uh, supersonic bomber, the YC141 Starlifter, and at the time a classified program, which turned out to be the Blackbird. And from that, from March 10th, 1964 on, I've had a passion about spooky airplanes, things that go bump in the night. I have, I believe in 1964, I spent a whole day in Area 51, but I, I couldn't say for sure because the windows were blocked out. But I have been digging stuff up on black airplanes, classified programs, you know, since, since the mid-60s. And I got to a point where I had gathered so much information, people quit talking to me. <laughs> and it's just it's, it's but I've never I've never backed I've never backed down and I've gone through I have like say I've interviewed because my passion is the blackbird and things that go bump in the night I've interviewed virtually everyone who everyone in the original uh, test pilots and I was also had a uh, an opportunity to meet some you know really incredible people yeah I've been doing this for over 50 years I did it before the internet. That's when it was challenging. So, and I don't know uh, how you did it without the internet, really, because I guess we are just, we're so tempered now to, that that is just how we find all of our information. That was the only way you could do it. There, you know, there, right. I'm really good on the phone and I, I travel all over, I traveled all over the, actually North America for most of my life. I mean, I had, uh, when I quit traveling for a living, I had over, what, three million miles uh, just on Delta Airlines. Wow. And that's cruel and unusual, that's cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, oh, yeah. But <laughs> just, and I, <laughs> I, and I don't, I don't fly anymore. And I, but, but I, I do go on road trips. So I do track down when I, when I go somewhere, I, I, I will try to track down somebody that I want to talk to and inter interview. I mean, I've, my favorite airplane in the whole wide world, of course, is the Blackbird. And I've interviewed virtually everybody who's crashed one. And that's, uh, sometimes they weren't willing to tell me about it. Yeah. It is what it is. It is what it is. And I've just had a, I just, I've had a fun time doing this. I don't take my t myself too serious. It just, there's too many people out there that think the world revolves around them when in fact it doesn't. <laughs> And one thing has led to another. I have interviewed uh, I interviewed a Blackbird pilot that chased one that left him in the dust. 
I and my old boss, the Major General Wayne Gatlin, chased one in an F-94C over Lake Superior, and it left him in the dust. And I've I've had guys who've who've encountered strange stuff they couldn't explain, and it's and it's led me to where I'm at today. <laughs> uh, of of the people I have I've you know had the pleasure and the honor to you know to meet and. and spend any time with was probably the most prominent one was Mr. Ben Rich. He was at the time, the Kelly Johnson's right-hand man. And eventually he ended up hitting up the Lockheed Skunk Works. Ben Rich, regarded as the father of stealth technology, was an engineer who was known for being the director of Lockheed Skunk Works from 1975 to 1991. Lockheed Skunk Works was the nickname for Lockheed Martin's advanced development program. In the 1950s and 1960s, Skunk Works was contracted by the CIA to begin building spy planes to fly over the Soviet Union. During the 1970s, Ben Rich spearheaded the Skunk Works projects in designing and producing the first known stealth technologies. In a bizarre connection, Skunk Works took its nickname from a well-known comic strip called Lil Abner, which ran in the United States from 1934 to 1977. On several occasions in the comic strip, it was said that the comic was set in Lee City, Kentucky, a backwoods mountain town. The nickname Skunk Works was used to describe the town's moonshine distillery, fondly named for its foul smell. The strong smell at Lockheed's Research and Development Department reminded employees of this widely known comic strip. Oddly enough, and maybe not by coincidence, Lee City, Kentucky is an area of Kentucky that has become recently infamous for its accounts of high strangeness and is situated a mere 87 miles from where this podcast is being recorded now. And it just that that friendship went on for 25 years. We spoke. I spoke with the president of the Lockheed Skunk Works about once a quarter for 25 years because he liked what I did and he loved my passion towards all things Blackbird and all things Skunk Works. So yeah, I because of that I became from Lockheed's point of view and a historical point of view probably the most knowledgeable pro, uh, person on the program not from a technical engineering standpoint and not from a pilot standpoint, but from a historian standpoint. And one thing has just led to another. And throughout all my everything, back in the very, very early 1970s, I got uh, linked up with a guy named John Andrews from Testers. He has since passed away. And he, he, was, he was actually almost like my brother. Because of him, I uh, said, I have some friends you gotta meet. So I ended up meeting Daryl Greenemeyer, Blackbird test pilot, but the biggest character I met uh, through my re- my friendship with John Andrews was John Lear. And those of those of you out in the UFO community, if you haven't heard from, heard about John Lear, you've probably been locked up in your basement too long. Uh, John and I go back almost fifty years, and it's just and he's still kicking today. He's not doing well, but he's still kicking today. John Lear, a retired pilot, former CIA pilot, and son of the famous Bill Lear, the inventor of the Lear jet. Lear was also a former captain in Lockheed Skunk Works. He is also highly regarded in the world of aviation, but also in the circles of UFO research. 
In the 1980s and 90s, he began to disclose some of the secrets concerning aerial phenomena and unidentified flying objects. And because of my, my friendship with John Lear, I've met a bunch of other characters. George Knapp is one of them. Um, and probably the most significant person I met because of my, my friendship relationship with John Lear was a, uh, a guy who processed some film for me. Back in January of 89, they had announced the existence of the F-117 stealth fighter. They'd been flying out of Area 51 since 81. And John Lear and I were heading up to Tonopah. We were going to see if we could photograph an F-117. No one had seen one yet in, in, in the flesh. And we we're up near Scotty's Junction going up US-95. And we're about and maybe 80 miles or 70 miles from the town of Tonopah. And an F-117 flew right over us, and we about crashed the car. So we get into Tonopah, we have a bite to eat, and then we head out US-6 to this big sign that says Tonopah Test Range. So we go down, we go along the fence line, we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, I look out towards the, the north, and there's a little white dot and a big black dot heading towards us. So it turns out it was an F-117 with a T-38, what they call little white mice, made by Northrop, uh, as a chase plane, and it flew right over us. And at the time, I was photographing with print film, and I was, I was so startled and you know, almost overwhelmed by seeing this still super-secret airplane that out of the 36 exposures of film I had, only three were sharp. The rest of them all were a little bit blurred. It was like being an you know, 11, 12-year-old you know, boy and seeing a naked woman for the first time. My whole body was just <laughs> surging. I, could, I mean, I could hardly focus the, uh, the film. It was my camera. So they landed, and you know, we figured we, get, we had to get back to, uh, to Las Vegas uh, and get, some, uh, get my film processed. So we drove, we headed east out on US-6, we get to the extraterrestrial highway, which wasn't called that then, it's Nevada 375. And we turned and we were, we're heading towards Rachel, the famous little, the famous place that put that Area 51 uh, and the little alien put on the map. We had something to bite to eat. And by the time we got to Vegas, it was, you know, maybe about 9.15 at night. The photo mats, and you got to be old enough to remember what a photo mat is. That's where you brought your film to get it processed. It was like a little barista uh, coffee shacks in the parking lot. Well, that used to be mm-hmm. pretty much what the photo mats were. But they were all closed, and I'm going I'm to have to wait till the next day. And John Lear said, I have a friend coming over here in about 10 minutes. Uh, I think you'll enjoy meeting him. So about 10 minutes later, hear the doorbell. John goes open the door, brings this guy in. Very nice looking guy. Uh, just moved there from Albuquerque. He's interviewing uh, for a job out in the desert. And he introduces himself as Bob Lazar. And I told him what my dilemma was with the print and the print film. And he said, well, I have a processing unit at home. Robert Lazar, an American scientist who in 1989 came forward to say he was employed by the U.S. Navy in a secret government section of Area 51 called S-4. It was at this location that Lazar said he worked on alien technology. Not only did Lazar work on this technology, 
he actually reverse-engineered what he called an antimatter reactor. Lazar said that this reactor was fueled by an element called ununpentium, or element 115. Lazar first broke this story to reporter George Knapp under the pseudonym Dennis. It was later disclosed who he was, and the U.S. Navy denied employing him. Since he has come forward with this information, Lazar has been discredited in every way possible, but never disproven. In 2005, element 115 was added to the periodic table as a new element, ununpentium. A C41 processing unit. We can develop your 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 coat of color print film and print some you know print some images images up. So told you, Lear, we'll be back in about an hour. We jump in this car. We're heading out uh, towards the west end of town, where, uh, where Bob called home. And he looks at me and he says, you know, I feel sorry for Lear. I said, what do you mean you feel sorry for Lear? He said, he's from this world-famous aviation family. I mean, his dad brought Learjet to the world. And the son of a bitch believes in UFOs. How stupid (laughs) is that? He said, I'm a nuclear physicist. If I can't prove it mathematically or touch it, it doesn't exist. He said, furthermore, you you couldn't put a gun to my head to convince me that UFOs were real. This is Bob Lazar talking before he went to work out in the desert. Bob Lazar, as far as I'm concerned, is real. So since we're already on the subject of Bob Lazar, um, I guess he's probably one of the most fascinating people, at least in my opinion, that reading about some of the things that he has, uh, he's talked about that he has claimed. Lazar talked about uh, re-engineering these extraterrestrial crafts. And you said he did what? not believe in that type of stuff before he worked in the desert. What do you think he encountered working out there that changed? I mean, it, it, it had to blow his mind. I mean, right. I, I, I'm, a, I'm as open on as far as technology goes, uh, anything is possible. Uh, I've seen it happen over my 75 years in this planet to go from not that many years passed, you know, since the Wright brothers flew until um, Chuck Yeager went Mach 1 for the first time in 47, and then Blackbird went Mach 3 for the first time in 63. So nothing, nothing surprises me. But Bob was so anti-UFO before he went to work out there. I don't know if he, what, he, what he thought he was going to work on, but they hired him because of, of his background. And the guy's brilliant. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to, uh, to interact with Bob at all. I have uh, not. I spent many, 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 many times at his house. I, you know, I have a picture of my son standing in front of Bob, uh, and behind him is his big supercomputer. Bob is. You can you can just you can tell by what he does, how he says it, and the stuff in his house. I mean, he has a jet car that will do 300 miles an hour. I think he's got rid of it decades ago. When you're around someone who is incredibly brilliant, there's something about him that they really can't hide that level of intelligence. And that's the way Bob is. But the thing that one of the telling things, now there's a lot, there's a lot of things that have led me to say that Bob Lazar is exactly who he says he is. And Bob Lazar did exactly what he said he did. When I was, uh, when I was in the Pentagon for, I I was enlisted. I retired as a, uh, as an E7 uh, master sergeant. I was an E9 slot, but the peace dev didn't uh, push me out the door. But I was, when I was there for Desert Shield and Desert Storm, I had Bob Lazar's W-2, his very last W-2 when he worked out uh, at S-4. And I had I had a couple hours to kill. Now, I'm in uniform. 
and I look at I'm trying to find the organization that he that the uh, W2 came from, and it's the U.S. Department of, the Department of Navy, and I can't remember where the rest of rest of it said, but it was I found I found a, an area or a, a, an office that was similar in nature. So I go over, you know, the far side of the Pentagon from where, where Guard Bureau was. I go into this office, and there's a young, uh, it's probably Lieutenant JG, which is equivalent to a first lieutenant, sit behind a desk, and I hand him Bob's W-2. Now I blanked out his Social Security number, which, by the way, allegedly has never been issued. So he looks at it, and he gets, he said, just a minute, he gets up, and he goes into the two-stars office. He's in there for about 30, 45 seconds. He comes out. He said, the Admiral will see you now. Now, those of you, you obviously have some experience with uh, military life. A Navy admiral, admiral is not going to sit down and have a conversation with an Air Force enlisted puke. And that's basically how he, you know, he views enlisted people and other branches of the service, especially the, the flyboy club, the Air Force. So I go, I go in there, I give him a real sharp salute, and he says, he said, parade rest. He didn't say at ease. So I'm standing there at parade rest, and he's looking at this W-2 of Robert Lazar. He said, I don't know where you got this, but if I ever see your face cross my threshold, my office ever again, you'll be the most sorry son of a bitch in NCO in the United States military. Do you understand me, Sergeant? I said, yes, sir. And with that, he took Lazar's W-2 and put it in the shredder. Now, if Bob was a phony, it would not have gotten the attention of the young Lieutenant J.G., and the Navy two-star would not have had a conversation with one enlisted puke uh, NCO, me. So that right, that right there got the reaction. The other, the other thing that uh, has been kicked around, and I've got to give a lot of credit to George Knapp, because he traveled all over the place to verify whether Bob was real or not, is... Bob said that he worked for, he was hired by Edward Teller. And those of us who've worked in a classified environment and had uh, classified clearances, if someone asks you a question about something that you know is classified, you can just say no comment. You can neither confirm nor deny the existence of said whatever it is. If Bob was a phony, the people that he said he worked for would have easily said, hey, I don't know where this guy came from, but he's full of baloney. Uh, don't believe a word he's saying. But they didn't. What, George Knapp contacted and spoke with Edward Teller, said, Bob Lazar said that you had hired him. He said, no comment. And everything, every time he asked him about Bob, it was no comment. If Bob had been a fraud, Teller and the other people that, that uh, George had tracked down and, and inquired about, would have said, I don't know who this, this SOB is. He never worked in my department. I, he's a jerk. He's a, he's a, he's a clown. He's, he's a phony. He's a fraud. But none of them said that. They all denied, de- declined to comment, which tells me that just adds one more thing into the, in, into the pile saying that Bob Lazar is real. The other thing, I had a, I had a friendship relationship with Ben Rich. He was the retired president of the Lockheed Skunk Works. And Ben and I spoke almost religiously about every 90 days. He'd either call me or I'd call him. And just before he died, he was at USC Medical Center 
I don't think it was in 96, I think it was, uh, 95, 96. But it was, it was around Christmas time, and he was dying of esophageal cancer. And I called him up at USC, a medical center, and we were talking. We were talking about a bunch of other stuff. And he said, Jim, we have things out in the desert. And he wasn't referring to Area 51, but you know, possibly S4, possibly other locations. But he said, we have things out in the desert that is 50 years beyond what you can comprehend. Did you hear what he said? He said, we have things out in the desert that is 50 years beyond what you can comprehend. 50 years ahead of where we are now. This, however, is not really surprising, knowing that governments keep many secrets from its people. Not what you think you can build in 50 years, but what you can comprehend. And if you've seen movies like Star Trek or Star Wars, we've been there, done that, or decided it wasn't worth the effort. And previous to that, he had spoken at a graduate uh, conference of engineers at U- uh, UCLA right after he retired. And, in, and it's, you can search it online. It's, it's, it's written there. Ben said, we have the, we ha- we have the ability to take E.T. home but the government will not allow me to release that, use that information or release that information to the general public. If we have the ability to take ET home, that means that what Bob Lazar was working on was not a one-off. There, we, have that, we have that capability. And this is from the president of the Lockheed Skunk Works. Right. This isn't some in, you know, low-level engineer. This is the guy... If, if there's something classified that has to do with anything that flies, Ben was probably privy to it. Between? So when Ben, when Ben's, mm-hmm. when Go ben ahead. said, we, you know, we, have, we have the ability to take E.T. home, that's a hell of a statement. Right. After hearing Jim put this technology into perspective, as he did, it is really hard to fathom that these secret projects our government has been working on for decades and that this technology is decades more advanced than where we are today. Whether you believe Jim or not, there has to be something out there that so many people have encountered. If we really have been getting technology from an extraterrestrial source, then it has to be more than we can possibly wrap our heads around. Knowing Jim had a close relationship with a lot of these people working on these secret projects, we were curious to know what, if anything else, that they ever disclosed. Here is Annie asking that question. So between Ben Rich and Bob Lazar, did anybody ever detail any of this uh, tech to you? Anything that they worked on? Anything that they would kind of, they wanted to talk about, maybe they were afraid to talk about? Or were they both super tight-lipped about the work that they did most a lot especially the old timers the younger younger kids not so much the old timers uh, there's a gentleman he was the number three guy at the skunk works he's retired he lives up on the oregon coast and I, I when i started working on my blackbird book which came out with three two and a half years ago uh i sent off to his first name is jim i sent it off to jim he came back almost immediately with a response to my email so just so you know the day I retired from the Skunk Works, I had a complete total memory loss of what I've done for the last 40 years. <laughs> In other words, he's telling me, don't come and pester me for an interview because I'm not going to say ask. anything. Right. 
Yeah. Wow. It's the young. It's the younger. It's the younger ones that that didn't grow up with that type of work ethic that right. uh, is is missing today in the in the world. So. Do you think any of them were ever frightened by anyone or told not to recount any of this, like just because their lives depended on it or the lives of their families? Do you think they were threatened into no, no, they, submission? They don't, if, if, you, if you're working in a classified environment where your security clearance is your key to success, they will tell you and they will, they will pull you on it randomly maybe once a month, maybe once every six months, and, but they'll, they'll pull you in on an irregular basis and they will, they will do a lie detector test on you. Now, if you flunk the lie detector test, you know, they're not going to prosecute you. What they're going to do is pull your clearance. If, you don't have a, if you've spent your entire career as an engineer or you know, some type of specialist as it, as it deals with spooky programs, if all of a sudden you lose your clearance, you have no clearance, and it's been it's been canceled for cause. They won't say what. You're screwed. Your 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 livelihood in that industry has been compromised and is now gone. So that's how they that's how they keep most of them from uh, talking. One I used to be along with. I used to be a member of the Blackbird Association, but it turns out uh, the current president of the Blackbird Association finds fault with me because I, I know more than he does from a historical point of view. So I've been blackballed from that uh, organization. But the, uh, now it's just, there's just, there are too many things that have gone on that can't be explained. That can only be explained by extraterrestrials. A gentleman, he just passed away two weeks ago and I was hoping to get him, uh, to get him on, on uh, tape. Uh, I have part of his interview, and somewhere I have his, I think I have his whole interview I took back a number of years ago. He's a retired lieutenant colonel, uh, Dave Fruhoff. He's an SR-71 pilot, and uh, he's, you know, he's off the uh, blue skies and green pastures. He passed away as a result of COVID, actually, a uh, result of it. But he was oh. quite sick to begin with. But in 1972, he was on a night training flight out of Kadena, Okinawa. He's in the far western Pacific, you know, near the Philippines. And he's flying at, he said, about 78,000 feet at Mach 2.7, which is about 1,800, 1,700 miles an hour ground speed. Three-quarter moon, uh, he's going straight. The moon is off to the left. He gets a glint of something metallic going the same direction as him. It's, and it's metallic because he's getting glint off the three-quarter moon. It's about five or six miles off to his right and probably six or 7,000 feet above him. So he think, thinking it's another SR-71, he contacts Kadena on Secure Voice and asks them if, if in fact, they, uh, we have another Blackbird up. He said, no, you're up there by yourself. And he said, no, I'm not. I'm going to go take a look. So about then, his backseater uh, gets on the intercom and says, hey, Dave, so I think we have company. He said, yeah, I'm going to go take a look. Now, this is unusual when you're, when you're flying the highest flying, fastest flying man, air-breathing airplane on the planet to see something that's flying right alongside you and even a little bit higher. So Dave pushes the throttles forward. Now, step back as, a, as a, just a, a note. At Mach 2.7, at 78,000 feet, the throttles are in minimum afterburner. The airplane just wants to fly fast. 
So Dave pushes the throttles forward. He does about a 10-degree bank to the right, never taking his eyes off the object, and he starts climbing, and he starts coming towards whatever this thing is. He said when he was uh, probably at 81 or 82,000 feet and still a mile or two away, this thing took off on a 30-degree angle of attack and left him like he was heading the other direction. He figured he estimated the separation speed to be between eight and 10,000 miles an hour, and he lost sight of it. He, he figures between 180 and 200,000 feet. This is 1972. Right. So 1980, Dave retires from the Air Force. Now, if you, if you have spent your military career in a spooky world environment where, where you've had access to stuff that goes bump in the night, the Blackbird, for example, um, it, you see, if you want to stay in that, that uh, career field, and, you, know, st- you know, stay in the, in the classified environment, it's, it's, a, it's pretty much a, uh, you step out of one uniform and, and you know, go to work uh, probably for the same person you were working for before you retired. Well, he became, they became the facility manager at Area 51 in 1980. And he knew most of the guys there, but he, but he waited around for a while to make sure that everybody was comfortable with him because he had, he had a burning question. And he was responsible for every building and every structure within the confines of Area, confines of Area 51. And he was responsible for all the non-program aircraft. In other words, the chase airplanes, the proficiency aircraft, the hackbirds. And uh, once he was there, he started, I mean, he was there about a year, and he started asking around, hey, did we ever develop anything that flew out of here that will do Mach 12, Mach 15? And of course, the answer was no. Mm-hmm. So what Dave had encountered was, and he, and he believed it until, until he died, he chased a UFO. But I believe uh, after, he, uh, after it was first made public, he got a little bit gun shy. I think he was told under no certain uncertain terms, this is not a subject you should breach. And now that he's passed away, I can use his name in vain. He was a great guy. He was a great guy. And you said earlier that you that you believed that you spent some time in Area 51. You went in there to, I believe you said, install some telemetry, but you didn't actually know Correct. that that's where you were. So when you got to Area 51, what did you experience there? What does it look like? I mean, does it just look like a regular Air Force base? Yeah, everything is tanned. We 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 flew from Edwards. We flew for about ninety. Uh, 90 minutes to maybe an hour and three quarters. When we, when we landed, all the windows are blocked. So you can't look out, you can't look out the windows. When we landed, we, we taxied up next to a hangar, a big uh, dark colored hangar. And there were uh, a handful of uh, buses, crew buses, whatever it is, parked on either side of the airplane. We got out, we had, our, we had box lunches brought in, but we were told as, as we exited exit the airplane, just go right for the door. Don't go stopping and looking around. So I'm making the assumption that was where I was at. Spent five hours there and was a couple other guys. We were installing the equipment and checking it out. And then we got back in the airplane and flew for another 90 minutes back to Edwards Air Force Base. I can only assume by what I know today that I was, in fact, inside Area 51 for five hours. Unofficial government business, but I had no, I, I had no real way to really honestly know that 
for sure. Area 51 is no secret to anyone, but what goes on here still very much is. Area 51 is the common name given to a United States Air Force base located within the Nevada Test and Training Range. A remote detachment of Edwards Air Force Base, this facility is called Homey Airport or Groom Lake. The secretive nature of this base has been for years at the center of government and alien conspiracies, especially since many strange phenomena has been seen above the skies over the Salt Flat area. In June 2013, the CIA publicly acknowledged the existence of Area 51, but what they have hidden inside its walls is still up for debate. But based on what, you know, based on what has happened in the last 50 years, I would say, yeah, I was there for sure. And in, in the early 1990s, I decided uh, I had to see what I can see. And I actually walked into Area 51 from the north fence line. I probably walked in two and a half, three miles. And it was 30 degrees out. I probably sweated out a gallon of sweat uh, because I was so friggin' nervous. <laughs> and because if they're not going to, if, if they catch someone in Area 51, a civilian, or at the time I was still in the military, um, they're not going to shoot you. But they're you're going they're going to they're going to play hell with uh, with your life for you know, for three to ten days, depending on where they found you and what what you what you had on you, and they can make your life miserable. And if you drive into Area 51, there was some a uh, couple of Dutch guys uh, drove in it was a couple of years ago, and their car got impounded. It was it was towed to Pinoche, a hundred miles away from Area 51. They were incarcerated and interrogated around the clock at Area 51. Uh, I think they said it was four days, five days. And then they put them in a windowless van and drove them through Mercury back to Las Vegas. Now, he had to go re- re- retrieve his rent-a-car, which now he's now had, a, uh, you know, like for two and a half weeks, uh, paying extra because he was only renting it for three days. And he has to get up to Pinoche. He has to pay the impound fee and everything else they figure if you penetrate the perimeter area of area 51 and get caught one they're not going to shoot you but it's going to cost you between 15 and twenty-five thousand dollars out of your pocket to correct you know to uh, make things whole again after they've you know run you through Mm -hmm. the grinder right so it is i mean a good example I'm at the fence line at Tonopah Test Range with John Lear. We're out there with our famous Area 51 Tonopah Test Range lawn chairs because you don't want to sit on the ground. There's scorpions and critters. <laughs> um, and we have night vision. We both both had night vision goggles on. And it's about 11 o'clock at night, and we see three armored personnel, personnel carriers coming for, towards us. They're on the south side of the fence. One's coming up from the south, one from the west, one from the east. And there's a pickup truck coming down the BLM, and it doesn't stand for Black Lives Matter. It stands for Bureau of Land Management. In other words, public land side of the fence. So I, I have my, my night vision goggles on, and I stand up, and I yell real loud, hey, we're good guys, we're taxpayers. And all of a sudden, we had floodlights on John and myself, and I had three little red dots dan- dancing on my chest. John had three little red dots dancing on his chest. 
And this guy comes around John's pickup truck with his hand on his gun. He's in desert uh, camouflage uh, uniform. And he said, you're in a restricted area. I'm ordering you to move, leave. I said, sir, I don't know who you are, but this is public lands and I don't have to go anywhere. Yes, you do. I'm ordering you out of here. I said, he said, this is a restricted area. So I pulled out an aeronautical map out of my back pocket. And I said, according to this official government map, which gives the longitude and latitude to the second of where the restricted area is. I said, I'm in public lands. And if you look at the base of that fence post, uh, right over there next to my buddy, there's a USGS medallion that gives the longitude and latitude. I'm in public lands and we're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. So this guy says, I want to see some ID. And I said, who are you? So I'm Captain So-and-so with ASI, which stood for Advanced Security Inc. There's a lot of contract security up mm-hmm. there. I said, sir, you're a rent-a-cop. You have no jurisdiction on this side of the fence. And boy, his jaws just, it was, it was you could see the blood vessels <laughs> bursting in his temple. And he said, I've been deputized by the state of Nevada, uh, Lincoln, Nye, and Esmeralda County to uphold the laws of the federal government and the state of Nevada. And I said, well, good for you. So I want to see some ID. I said, well, I don't have to show you a squad. I said, but I tell you what, you show me yours, I'll show you mine. So he hands me his ASI badge. And I said, and I, and I, you don't, you, you don't disrespect these guys. They're doing a job. They, you know, they're, it's, it's being shoved down there through what they have to do. So I looked at the ba- I looked at his badge and I said, sir, I need, this is not a, this is not a valid form of ID. I need something issued by the state or federal government. And his jaws are just, I mean, I, he probably couldn't eat for two or three days after you know, he met with us. <laughs> his jaws were so tight. He hands me his Nevada driver's license and I don't have my glasses on. So, okay, fine. So I pull out my Minnesota driver's license. I didn't show my military ID. I showed him my Minnesota driver's license. Lear pulls out his, you know, he lives in Vegas. He hands it to a guy at the, on the south side of the fence who goes over to the supervisor in one of the armored personnel carriers. Interior light goes on and I hear, oh shit, it's good all in Lear. <laughs> and the lights went off, the red dots went off. They knew they weren't doing, going to be able to intimidate me out of the area. Right. And you know, I, have a, I have quite a reputation out there. <laughs> So here's here's something that I've always thought, and and if anybody would know this, it would be you. When the whole storm area 51 happened, I always thought, what could they be hiding in area 51 that they couldn't be hiding anywhere else? Is area 51 a decoy for um, things that they could be hiding there? Or do you think it's almost like a distraction? Are they really hiding something in Area 51? Or well, is it a, the, almost like a, a distraction every, so yeah. that people will hang out outside the fence and they're really hiding the goods somewhere else? There's one, there's too much, too many billions of infrastructure have been built at Area 51 for them to walk away from it. Kelly Johnson's first response when uh, Tony LeVere and Dorsey Kammer found Area 51 and Groom Dry Lake. When they were developing the U-2 spy plane, Kelly Johnson told Tony, his chief pilot, and Dorsey, one of his trusted engineers, I want you to go out in a, in a twin beach and go fly around, find, find a, a remote, isolated place that we could build a small test base 
for the U2. So they tried, you know, they looked at Mud Lake, which is not that far from Tonopah, and a, a bunch of other ones. And they, when they landed on, when they landed on Groom Dry Lake, I mean, it was about three inches of dust on the uh, on the dry lake bed. And it was it was really really remote. So I figured this was a, this was the best candidate. And it's also part of it's it's also within the Nevada test site, so there wasn't anything they need to do do a land grab for. So they flew back to Burbank. They told Kelly about it. Uh, a day or two later, they get back into the Twin Beach. They fly and land on uh, Groom Dry Lake, and, and Kelly still feels this is really way too remote. But well, it's the best shot we have. We'll go for it. So that was really the beginning of Area 51. Now they have they've continued to evolve, build more uh, ramp space, build more uh, you know, hangars, and you know they have a. At one time, they had a 27,000-foot runway. And I asked a friend of mine who was in flight tester, why do you need a 27,000-foot runway? He said, because something we're working on takes 9,000 feet to take off. <laughs> I said, what are you doing with the rest of the, you know, the other 18,000 feet? He said, well, if you have to abort the takeoff right at liftoff, it takes twice the distance to stop. So was that Aurora that they were developing the uh, you know, the runway for? I don't know, but I have to assume it was. So um, Area Area 51 is just too important. It's still totally isolated from the rest of the world. Now, a number of years ago, Jim Wilson from uh, Popular Mechanics said, "Oh, Area 51's closed." He said he went to a gate and there was a, there was a rusted padlock on it. And he went he went to a uh, livestock marshaling area. And just because he honked, honked his horn and no one came doesn't mean Area 51 was closed. Right. So, uh, and, and, and the other thing you have, you have to take into consideration, there's a lot of people out there that uh, are overly impressed with themselves when it comes to UFOs and things that go bump in the night and, and Area 51 and that part of the world in general. So, and I've run into quite a few of them like that. But it's it's what you it's what you have to deal with when you're you know when you're dealing with things that are not readily available to the general public. Area 51 is a flight test facility. It has been since 1954, I think, when Dorsey and uh, Tony first landed on there, and that's where they and that's where they that's where the the spooky stuff goes. In the 1950s and 60s, technology made amazing strides and leaps. Presidents of the United States paid high praise to technology companies for their work in bringing about a new age for its people. The late 50s and 60s, the military arms race was especially building and expanding because of what they believed to be a growing threat by the Soviet Union. There was also a race to put the first man on the moon. Some presidents were highly involved in pushing legislation to help build our country's technology. But where and how did we get this new technology? Annie asked Jim about this. Jim, there was a lot of tech expansion, it seems, in the 1950s and 60s. And I watched a show recently about um, the some of the presidents going as far back as Harry Truman in the 1940s who had to deal with this kind of panic of UFOs and basically presidents who had 
either knowledge of maybe some type of UFO activity. And it seemed like a lot of it went back to the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. I think they even talked about JFK in the week or 10 days before he died had issued a memo to the CIA about sharing alien information with the Soviets. You were in the military at a time that a lot of this was going on. Do you remember any of that happening? Kind of this panic amongst people, um, presidents shooting down the fact that aliens may or may not be real? Well, uh, Jimmy Carter was not one of my favorite presidents, but he was a good guy, decent guy. And, you know, he was an, uh, a, a nuclear power guy. I mean, and he said, go, going up to the election, he said, when I, when I. Jim, you still there? I lost you somehow. You there? Are you still there? Did you lose him? Yep. Jim, you there? It still, still says he's connected. Are you still connected, Amy? Yeah, I can hear you, and it's still recording, but I, I can't hear him at all. He's oh, gone. Yeah, I'm going to try to reconnect with him. It almost sounds like it's weird because there was a couple times where it would click in and out like somebody was listening to the call. And I don't know. I'll have to go back and listen to it. But it's just weird. Somebody, Somebody's listening. This has been part three of I Am Cold, Is Someone Listening? A special thanks to Jim Goodall for his time and his military service. This series was written, hosted, researched, and produced by Brendan Shea and Annie Weibel. Additional researcher and co-producer is Chris DeMarais. Follow Chris on his Facebook group, MUFON South Carolina. Jim's story is not over, so get ready. We will see you in time 